Welcome back to Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm Jesse Bartholomew, and I'm going to cover a true crime case today that is pretty unsettling. So if you are sensitive to the topics of rape, assault, murder, violence against children, uh, this one you might want to skip. This might not be the one for you. And it was actually a listener suggestion from Mandy, and Mandy's brother was a police sergeant when this took place, and he was actually one of the first on the scene, which after I tell you this story will be pretty unfathomable. So thank you to Mandy for the suggestion and to your brother for his military and police service. This is the story of Kentucky death row inmate Kevin Dunlap. Kevin Wayne Dunlap was born on May 15, 1972, in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. As with most of these guys, I couldn't find too much about his background, other than he has at least two kids. He almost got divorced in 2004, and he was in the Army from 1989 until 2002, and then the Kentucky National Guard for two years after that. While in the Army, he was ranked Staff Sergeant, and his last assignment was at Hunter Army Airfield in Georgia. And he won awards, including a Good Conduct Medal, a National Defense Service Medal, and an Overseas Service Medal. So, this event happened in Trigg County, which is way down in western Kentucky, almost like at the very corner there. And it occurred in a neighborhood near the Fort Campbell Army Post. And it's my understanding that Kevin Dunlap didn't actually live in the area anymore, but that he used to live in the area. Uh, One article I found said he used to live six houses down from the house where this happened on a rural road. So on October 15th, 2008, Christy Friendsley was out working in her yard. And her house was listed for sale at the time. And this guy showed up, and it was a man named Kevin Dunlap, and he asked if he could come in and take a look at the home that was for sale, her home. I'm going to stop right here and say, if you are alone and someone sees that your house is for sale and asks to come inside, make up an excuse. It's not presentable right now. There are big dogs I can't put up right now. All my guns are sprawled out to be cleaned right now. I don't care what it is, just don't let them go in there with you alone when you're caught off guard, not prepared, no one knows that they're there with you. Tell them to come back later, preferably with a realtor. Now, I'm in no way victim blaming here. In no way was this Christie's fault. And hindsight is 2020, but it doesn't hurt to learn from these things, right? So anyway, Kevin Dunlap asked to see the house and she said, all right, and she took him inside. And once they were inside, Dunlap placed a gun to her head, he zip-tied her wrists and ankles, and he took her into the bedroom. And not very long after that, her three kids got home from school, and it was 17-year-old Kayla Williams, 14-year-old Courtney Friendsley, and 5-year-old Ethan Friendsley. And he somehow managed to tie all three of them up as well, and then he moved them into a different part of the house. And I'm going to give another listener discretion warning here. It's about to get really rough. So Dunlap went back to the bedroom where Christy was tied up and he raped her. And then he put her in the shower, back in the bed, made an attempt to strangle her, then to smother her with a pillow. And then he started to cut her neck. And the silver lining is that we know all of these details because she survived. 
But after slicing at her neck, he left the room momentarily, and then he returned again, and he stabbed her this time in the left ear and twice in the lower back. And he he actually broke off a butter knife at the handle, jabbing it into her neck, and it had to be removed during surgery later. It's just so insane. And it was at that point that she just started to play dead. And she must have done a really good job because he decided to just throw a blanket over her and move on. So he thought that he'd killed her. So then he poured a flammable liquid all over the bedroom floor and set it on fire. And Christy like became a little more alert at this point and she was able to actually see her five-year-old son, Ethan, lying on a pile of pillows across the hall. And she tried to get up out of bed and run over and save him. And she realized she just couldn't even walk, like she could barely move. Uh, She was able to roll off the bed towards these French doors in her room that led to the outside, and she tried to pull at one of the door handles with her foot. Um, She couldn't quite get it. She struggled for a while, and then finally, she must have been able to get that handle because when police later found her, she was lying face up in the pool with her hands still tied, which is a terrifying thought in and of itself. She could have easily drowned. But when they found her, they asked her what happened and who did it. And she told them that she was raped, that she didn't know who the man was, and that he had been wearing, he was a white male wearing a direct TV shirt. Later, when Christy arrived at the Jenny Stewart Medical Center, the doctors described her as cold to the touch with a rapid heartbeat. So what happened was there were some neighbors that finally noticed when they were out and about, they noticed the flames coming from the house. And one of them, when they got closer, they actually saw Kayla, the 17-year-old's body. Um, They could see her through a window. So they tried to save her by breaking that window and pulling her out. And this is gnarly. So if you don't like these details, fast forward a little bit. But by the time they'd gotten to her, and they were grabbing to get her out, her skin was just coming off in their hands. And her hands were actually still tied up, and her mouth was gagged as they were pulling her out. Um, They could see that her throat had been very deeply slashed, and a knife blade was protruding from her back through her sweater. It's like something out of a horror movie, and I cannot imagine being one of those neighbors or a first responder. And it was a small town, you know, a a small community too. And they all, sounds like they knew each other. And so a lot of these people knew Christy and the kids personally. And even worse, I think, when when they pulled her out, she was still alive. So this poor sweet girl was actually conscious for all of this. And so they were able to get her out and she was just barely alive. And these two women were attempting CPR and she just she passed away right there in the front yard and I'm not even going gonna go into any more detail about the other two kids or I'll just start crying but um, the other two kids both died as well from injuries inflicted prior to the fire um, from multiple stab wounds so a friend of Christie's named Matt Ledford was a volunteer firefighter and he stopped by the house pretty regularly one one article I saw actually said daily 
and he remembered seeing a vehicle there that day at Christie's house, and he was able to describe that vehicle to police, and he even recalled the first letters of the license plate. It was actually H-E-Y, hey, so it was just, you know, one of those noticeable plates that you might remember. So they issued a search warrant. Um, three days later, on Saturday, he was arrested, and they collected several pieces of evidence linking Dunlap to the crime. Plus, the Kentucky State Crime Lab was able to examine the rape kit for Christy and match the DNA to Kevin. Her DNA was also found on the driver's side seatbelt of Dunlap's vehicle, and Courtney, the 14-year-old's DNA, was found on his shoes. So, he was arrested, and he was indicted by a Trigg County grand jury for three counts each of capital murder, capital kidnapping, and tampering with physical evidence, plus one count each of attempted murder, first-degree burglary, first-degree arson, and first-degree rape. Now, as you can imagine, some might wonder how someone of sound mind could commit such abhorrent crimes, and that was exactly the question on everyone's mind. So Dunlap was sent to the Kentucky Correctional Psychiatric Center for a 30-day evaluation. They needed to make sure he was competent, fit to stand trial, plus they needed to understand motive. They couldn't establish any sort of relationship between Christy or her kids with their assailant, so It just, you know, it's hard to swallow that something so violent can be done randomly, right? So on January 22nd, 2010, Dr. Amy Trevett, Dunlap's psychiatric supervisor, testified that Dunlap did in fact understand the nature and consequences of the charges brought against him and that he had a, quote, general understanding of the courtroom proceedings and the individuals involved. And the court agreed. But now here's where things get really interesting. Roughly a month before the trial was to begin, a CT scan revealed, quote, two nonspecific hyperattenuated punctuate foci, essentially abnormal spots, on the right frontal lobe of Dunlap's brain. Naturally, the defense attorney's ears perked up at this, and so they ordered an accompanying PET scan, an MRI, And they also tried to get the trial postponed, uh, but that got denied. But the results from those additional tests revealed that Dunlap had, quote, an arterial venous malformation, an AVM, on his right frontal lobe, measuring approximately one cubic inch. It was a tangle of arteries and veins existing where cortical matter would be on a normally developed brain. Now, according to Healthline, Here are the things that your frontal lobe is in charge of. Voluntary movements of the opposite side of your body, sequencing of complex or multi-step movements, speech and language production, attention and concentration, working memory, reasoning and judgment, organization and planning, problem solving, regulation of emotions and mood, including reading the emotions of others, personality expression, motivation, impulse control, and controlling social behaviors. So, a turn of events, um, but the day before the trial was set to begin, Kevin Dunlap did change his plea from not guilty 
to guilty but mentally ill, which is known as GBMI, guilty but mentally ill. And if the court would not accept the GBMI plea, he would do a guilty plea. And so his defense then asked for a postponement, again, for a reevaluation, which was again denied. And they also rejected the GBMI plea and accepted a plea of guilty instead. There was a two-week capital sentencing proceeding that started on February 10th, 2010. And the sentencing jury deliberated for three hours and recommended a death sentence on each of the capital sentences. He was also sentenced to life imprisonment for kidnapping, rape, and arson, 20 years for attempted murder and burglary, and five years for each of the tampering convictions. There was a retrial motion filed pretty quickly and denied quickly by the judge. And Kayla Williams' father spoke at the sentencing proceedings, and he said, quote, I still find it hard to understand how you can sit motionless, emotionless, void of reaction as the many photos and accounts of the aftermath of your crimes were described in great detail to this courtroom. It's clearly evident that you have no remorse for your crimes against my family and this society. I only regret I cannot be allowed to determine your punishment on my own and carry it out as your personal executioner. During the trial, they had to obviously reveal a lot of the gruesome details, including photos of the burning house, uh, photos of Christy floating in a bloody pool, and graphic images of the three children. Um, they also showed pictures of Christy's injuries close up in the hospital. but. I guess none of this got any sort of reaction out of Dunlap. Um, and they had Christy go outside while they showed all these photos, but Kayla's father stayed, and I just I cannot imagine. So following these proceedings and sentencing, Dunlap's uniform color was switched from orange to red, and he was promptly moved to death row. Dunlap did appeal to the Kentucky Supreme Court, which made its decision on June 20th, 2013. And his attorney cited 21 issues, plus like a whole other list of sub-issues. And the nice thing about this particular court case is they included a lot of the dialogue, um, more than in other cases I've read. So some of the dialogue directly from the proceedings, which is nice. So of course, one of the big, bigger issues was that they thought it was wrong the way the court denied the GBMI plea and accepted just a regular guilty plea. And this is where I learned that Dunlap actually changed his plea the day before the trial against the advice of his counsel, who said his decision to do that was, quote, not knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily made, but was instead the product of mental illness, specifically a previously diagnosed depressive disorder and organic brain damage. In response to this, in the appeal, the court says, quote, the appellant was not suffering from a mental illness at the time of the murders. It therefore rejected the GBMI plea and accepted the guilty plea. He goes on to say that because of the AVM they found in his frontal lobe, he shouldn't even have been permitted to change his plea in the first place and that he should have been granted that continuance after the finding. 
Now, this appeal decision is 60 some odd pages long. So if you'd like to learn about their entire response to all these issues, you can just search Kevin Dunlap v. Commonwealth of Kentucky and it should come right up. But I will read you some of the dialogue from the exchanges at his competency hearing. So the court asked, you heard Dr. Trivett's testimony that she believed you were competent to stand trial. Do you agree with that? Yes, sir, I'm competent. And you have understood all the proceedings here in court up till today and including today so far. Yes, sir. So as far as you're standing there now, is it your belief that your judgment is not impaired at this time? That is correct. And I'm telling you all this because I do have a follow-up question, and, and that is, is an incompetent person able to judge for themselves whether or not they are competent? I mean, that's really the million-dollar question here, isn't it? I'm just kind of thinking out loud, and in no way am I trying to defend this guy. I'm just saying from a psychological perspective, it's kind of a gray area. I mean, how, how are we to um, believe or, like, verify that he knows whether or not he himself is competent to stand trial. It's just kind of interesting. Um, so later on in the proceedings, I found another interesting in exchange. The court asked, all right, before that, referring to the AVM, have you ever been diagnosed with any mental illness, disease, or defect that affects your ability to think or reason? And he said, depression would probably affect my reasoning. All right, did you treat your depression occasionally through prescribed medicine? Yes, sir. Okay, and did that help? Sometimes. And then they said, now I know from what your attorney said before you and I began this discussion that you have talked with your attorneys about your plea of guilty today. And is it your understanding that they agree or disagree with your going forward with any plea today? And Dunlap said, I understand that they disagree. And despite that disagreement, is it your wish to go ahead with the plea today? Yes, sir. Can you tell me why you would go against your attorney's advice and do that? And Kevin said, it's what I feel is right. So the rest of the issues brought up in the appeal are pretty standard. Things you've heard before, like the jury being improperly selected, improper cross-exams, improper introduction of certain photographs and evidence, trial location, things like that. Ultimately, the Kentucky Supreme Court upheld the lower court's ruling, and the Kentucky State Penitentiary is still where Kevin Wayne Dunlap calls home. I try to keep an eye on the death row inmate cases I cover, so if there are any updates on this case in the future, I will include them in a future episode. But for now, that is where things stand. So if you are feeling so compelled after listening to this episode, head over to thecenteronline.com, that's the Center for Women and Families, and make a donation. They do great work. Thank you for listening, and until next time.